Grad school duped me. Grad school told me that the biggest pathologies I'd face as a therapist were going to be the tried and trues. Anxiety, depression, stress, post-trauma. Yet those were not the biggest issues my clients were facing. In all honesty, if the true pathologies were what grad school told me they'd be, my job would have been so much easier. But the truth is, shame takes someone down quicker and with more force than anything else I've seen. So the idea of reading a self-help book intent on teaching us how to be shame-free? What could be more compelling than that? Or maybe the better question is, what's in it for me? Welcome to What's In It For Me, the best self-help book reviews of the best self-help books from 2019, reviewed by me, Michelle Manning. And we're kicking it off with Rachel Hollis's Girl Stop Apologizing, a shame-free plan for embracing and achieving your goals. Now, I'm a reader, one of those readers that appreciates books like some appreciate fine wine. I love the smell of the paper, the touch of each page turning, the weight and size of the book in my hand and the invitation of the cover. And since such an appreciation is not one I keep to myself, I trust that the best way to start any book review is by starting from the beginning, the cover. And though there's more to every book than the cover, I still couldn't help taking the time to let Hollis's cover soak in, asking what message the cover is intending to send, especially since her cover features her. And in looking over the cover objectively, we see, by conventional standards, an attractive blonde white woman, mermaid hair cascading down her shoulders, wearing a plain red sweater and pair of jeans, a pretty casual look. Hollis's initial necklace features prominently on the cover as if declaring, no shame if the first initial in your name is an R. She has a smile and is photographed running her fingers through her hair with an expression that says, I'm so comfortable with my casual attire and presentation. As we open the book, we can see that it is dedicated to her daughter, with Hollis adding, quote, May you live your life without apology in celebration of who God created you to be. Let's start the review here. An author's intention is to set a tone, usually set in the introduction to the book. This is not only used to whet the appetite of the reader, but to also provide ideas, thoughts, or directives reinforcing the author's objective. In knowing this, I couldn't help but respond to the introduction as a reader rather than reviewer. And as a reader, my first concern would be a question. If the author mentions God in the dedication, would that, could that, exclude people who don't align with God, religion, Christianity, or any other type of religious ideology? This was definitely a question that crossed my mind, but not one I used to influence the review. I set a course for simply focusing on the content, even bypassing the introduction for review purposes, despite still using it to further get a sense of tone. And boy, did I. Given the tone of her introduction, Hollis did an excellent job of characterizing herself. She is very confident with generalizing, exemplified in the general statements she makes about her audience. 
Women especially are so brutal on themselves, she says. Women are afraid of themselves, she says. Many women in this world of ours are operating at a fraction of their potential because they haven't encountered a catalyst strong enough to unlock it, she says. And what almost seems like a contradiction to her sweeping generalizations, she also seems to have a limited worldview. She writes, I was raised knowing I would get married and have children. In my small hometown, most of the girls I went to high school with had their first child by the time they were 19. When I had my first son at 24, I was practically ancient. So by this point in the introduction, it's clear to see she's confident with her assessment of women as a whole, despite growing up in a small town perpetuating outdated gender roles. She continues to set the tone regarding her struggles which seem to be fairly limited as well. Like many other women, she writes, I'm still in the process of overcoming a lifetime of people-pleasing. Now, it is true that people-pleasing is a thing, but I'd trust it's arguable that many women, as Hollis states, spend a lifetime overcoming it. But strangely enough, Her lifelong challenges haven't seemed to keep her from success. She describes herself as being, quote, a successful entrepreneur who built a multi-million dollar company with only a high school diploma. So by this point, we're introduced to someone who feels as if people-pleasing is one of her biggest challenges, but not big enough to keep her from running a multi-million dollar company or building and running another one. And if all of her success is laid out in the introduction, the reader might interpret Hollis's road to success as being quick and easy, similar to her plan to be shame-free. In the introduction, Hollis maps out the plan to shame-free broken down into three parts. First, excuses to let go of. Second, behaviors to adopt. And third, skills to acquire. Let go of, adopt, acquire. We're not even on page one, and Hollis is introducing the concept of living shame-free as simply replacing an old mindset with a new one. Seems quick and easy enough, or does she just make it seem that way? The answer? She just makes it seem that way. Girl Stop Apologizing struck out on page 13. As a reader reviewing the relevancy of this book and its objective, I found there was no point to read beyond page 13. And here's why. But sister, Hollis declares, let me tell you right now, determination makes the difference between where you are and where you want to be. Page 7 and strike 1. As it was clear to see in the introduction, Hollis makes generalizations when it comes to the biggest challenges facing women. And even though we're barely into the first chapter, it's evident that her language is an attempt at general appeal, using language that seems as if she's trying to characterize herself as the every woman. Hollis is a white woman from a small town who runs a multi-million dollar company, yet writes as if she can relate to a lot of people 
including her questionable use of words like girlfriend and sister. I might be playing dumb, but I very rarely hear the words girlfriend and sister used in a general way by anyone who A, mentions property taxes in LA, B, dances it out before big meetings, and C, gives a shout out to Forrest Gump, all on page one. But to generalize is not a fatal flaw. This is not the reason for the first strike. The first strike comes from Hollis trusting her generalizations speak to and for everyone. She just fails to mention everyone like her. As Hollis writes, determination makes the difference between where you are and where you want to be. As someone who is immersed in shame as a profession, otherwise known as therapy, determination is not the only difference between shame and shame-free. It was at this point in the book that I began to wonder if Hollis was truly struggling with shame or truly struggling with imperfection. She gives examples of times in her life which devastated her to the point of shame. In response to being criticized for misrepresenting herself, Hollis recalls, I assumed everyone would realize I must have had help. I was creating six intricately produced blog posts every single week, and I had two small children. Of course I had help. But for whatever reason, that wasn't apparent to most people, and when they realized the truth, some of them were pissed. I was devastated. To be devastated by criticism is a luxury on the spectrum of truly devastating experiences. She's not talking about the sudden death of a loved one or a battle with ovarian cancer at age 25. She's talking about being criticized. The thing we theoretically overcome in high school? This type of devastation is a mindset and one revolving around a perfectionist mentality. People intent on perfection are very sensitive to criticism, and people sensitive to criticism typically find benefit with the simple task of just be more determined, or even benefit from Hollis's plan of letting go, adopting, acquiring. I'm not going to suggest that overcoming criticism is easy, but of all the things a woman has to overcome, all the things Hollis fails to mention, like abuse, assault, and or being born into a family who gives no fucks about you. And determination goes where? Shame breeds in abuse, assault, and families of origin, and usually not the supportive ones, which left me to question if Hollis was feeling shame at her inability to be perfect or guilt. And yet it only took another four pages before we got to strike two. In the introduction, Hollis lays out a three-part plan to overcome shame. Excuses to let go of, behaviors to adopt, and skills to acquire. What this implies is that this book is all you need to live like Hollis, with a shame-free outlook. Yet it's on page 11 where Hollis implicates herself and earns her second strike. When speaking about her old, shameful self, 
Hollis reflects, It honestly seems stupid in retrospect because I'm so far removed from that insecure young woman. Thank you, therapy! Self-help gurus do this a lot. They promote the notion of using your own strengths to get what you need, even embodying what it is to be an empowered person, a shame-free person. They're casual on their cover because they don't have a care in the world. They've replaced their stinking thinking with positive affirmations, and they have loads of gimmicks to help the positive affirmations stick, like worksheets and mantras and products beyond the book they sell. What self-helpers like Hollis fail to do is accurately and sincerely provide a comprehensive testament to their empowerment. Without that, we're left with more questions for Hollis than answers. Maybe even asking her, if therapy significantly contributed to your growth, then we'd need more than your book to live out your plan, right? But it was two pages later that would strike out not only Hollis as a credible self-helper, but also the relevance of her entire objective. She writes, There were a handful of topics I knew would make people angry, so I stopped mentioning them altogether. Working, entrepreneurialism, my team, having a nanny, having a housekeeper, business trips. She continues, It all quickly became taboo. Which, she states, shamed her into only staying focused on what people loved. Pinterest-worthy photos, parenting advice, exercise tips, cupcake recipes, you know, lady stuff. So it seems as if Hollis's shame in being ambitious and building a team compelled her to present herself as more ladylike, willfully presenting a projection of herself more palatable to her fans, if only to be more palatable to her fans. This type of shame and urgent need to portray ourselves as something other than authentic is an experience shared by many women, many women living in the 19th century. Because in the 21st century, do you know how many women would give anything, literally anything, for their biggest issue to be how to look and act like a lady? which is essentially what Hollis has described. Women in the 19th century definitely had difficult lives, being put into boxes, restricting them from setting their own course for life. But Hollis seems to be struggling with the guilt or shame of putting herself in the box, struggling with the decisions she has made, trading blatant ambition for cupcake recipes. If this book's objective was how to avoid the trappings of outdated gender types, I'd probably still be reading it. But most people who buy this book will experience shame from sources so profound. A shift in mindset is worthless, but will get you a strike. And in this case, strike three, it's out. Which brings us to our last segment. Once a book strikes out, it's now time to discuss ways in which the author's advice on self-help could have gotten a hit. So let's break down each strike. Strike one. Determination makes the difference between where you are and where you want to be. Many, many people feel this way. Even many, many therapists. Which, literally, makes people crazy. When self-help gurus and therapists 
are instructing you to be more determined in order to change your circumstances, it's as if they trust that you are the only thing standing in between you and what you want. Hollis's sentiment. It is you, after all, who is your own worst enemy. Yet despite the mass appeal of this concept, it's limited when it comes to actually removing shame. In my line of work, there are those that are fucked up, but then there are those who get fucked up. My job revolves around working primarily with those that get fucked up, a population Hollis's approach is useless for. When your life is fucked up because your chronic pain is the result of years and years of abuse, determination is not going to take your shame away. When your life is fucked up by being forced to choose between becoming an entrepreneur or keeping your dead-end job with health insurance, determination is not going to pay for chemotherapy. And yet generalizations like Hollis's are dangerous for making it seem so easy, making it seem as if it's all dependent on you and your mindset. But she paints an easy-to-swallow concept, and it just costs $15 on Amazon. An easy-to-swallow concept makes Hollis's approach appealing, but doesn't make it effective. So what would? Hollis's message is worthwhile. There are benefits to a plan that involves letting go of, adopting, and acquiring things that work for you rather than against you. But what she needs to do to improve the overall efficacy of her message is acknowledge who specifically this plan would be effective for. Because determination and a new mindset can be very effective for women like Hollis. Women who have supportive families, like Hollis. Women capable of choosing when to have children, even if there was pressure to do so early, like Hollis. And women who are already successful, but would just like to be more popular, like Hollis. If Hollis stops trying to be an every woman, because there's no way in hell she is, she'll do a better job of benefiting the every woman. And rather than disguise herself as prosperity porn, Hollis needs to be real to keep it real. Not talk at us, but talk with us. Kind of like an athlete. One of the most frustrating things about reading honest depictions of athletes is how many variables are involved in elite athletic success. Yes, there is determination, but there's also the support system within the family. Then there's the support system of the actual systems themselves. And we haven't even gotten to the talent or luck involved in that level of success. Variables I'm sure Hollis can relate to. And honestly, she'd be more relatable if she were real about this, setting a tone early on that describes her ability to be self-determined as a result of not really having a lot standing in her way. And when you don't have a lot standing in your way, then it's probably pretty safe to say you have peace of mind. You might still feel pressure or even devastated in letting people down, but nothing a good old attitude adjustment can't fix. And she needs to say this. Bring truth to it, because it is the truth. Hollis is not a woman so typical her experiences are easy to relate to. She runs multi-million dollar companies. 
which sells books, but it doesn't sell change. In order to sell change, we not only need to relate to the author as a person, but we need to get a sense the author sees us, even if they aren't us. A huge motivator for change. And sometimes, what makes someone relatable and relative is just recognizing. Recognizing and saying something about the women Hollis will never be able to relate to. And for Hollis, it could be as simple as changing her language from excuses to let go of to excuses to let go of when your foundation is secure. State clearly in the introduction who is best equipped to apply her advice. Hollis's relevance in self-help would also be enriched if she talked about her therapeutic experience in ways that aren't reductive. When reading the book, her shout-out to therapy, thank you, therapy, is reduced to parentheses at the end of the sentence. If therapy were truly beneficial for her, how? Many people are in therapy, and too many people don't get the support they need from it. If Hollis did, it would really be great to gain insight into how that contributed to her success, instead of sidelining it to a parenthesis. So, despite three strikes coming in 13 pages into the first chapter, we still want to ask, what's in it for me? The answer? A pretty good plan to remove the guilt of imposter syndrome, but as a shame-free plan for embracing your goals? Not much, except a pocketbook less $15. Thanks for listening, and make sure you stay tuned for our next review of Lori Gottlieb's Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. A therapist reviewing a therapist? This should be fun. For more musings, opinions, or very unladylike perspectives, visit my website, michellelmanning.com. See you next time.